Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Hey everybody. What do you make of the times in which we live? The Bible gives us a perspective on that question that is brilliantly illuminating. And remarkably, that answer comes into sharp focus in 1 Kings chapter 6. I say remarkably because this is a chapter of the Bible that at first glance seems to promise very little. It's a detailed description of a building with its dimensions, materials, layouts, and decoration. It's quite technical in its nature. You've never seen a bumper sticker with a verse from 1 Kings chapter 6 on it. And indeed, there are a number of terms that are now obscure to us. And unless you have an interest in the architecture of ancient buildings, you might be tempted to just go ahead and skip this sort of tedious material. And yet we see in 1 Kings that we are approaching the high point of the entire Old Testament. It's one of the most important moments in history. And we will find ourselves at this high point in the next few chapters of 1 Kings. The chapter before us brings us to the historical moment and will give us a true perspective on the history of the whole world and therefore the question about the times in which we live. Now these are rather grand claims for one of the apparently more boring chapters in the Bible. You may suspect that I've been carried away in my desperation to justify our interest in this, but not so. There are a number of remarkably important parts of the Bible that appear uninteresting at first sight. This is one of the most important ones. But the rich lessons of this part of the Bible does require a little more patience on our part. We left last week given, being given the dimensions of the temple. This week we're going to finally see it finished. Look at verse 14 with me. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he paneled the walls on the inside with wood. And he paneled the floor of the house with boards of juniper. He also built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them forward on the inside as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is the main room in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. There was cedar inside the house, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. There was no stone visible. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary inside the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also paneled the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he extended chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the entire house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the entire altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. The first thing I want us to notice this morning, and that is in verse 14, is that Solomon finished what he had started. It says, thus King Solomon finished the house. 
Now, finish is going to be a key word in this chapter. Now that the Lord has given Solomon rest from Israel's enemies, the king has finished his work of building the temple. This is the first of several different points where we will see striking contrast between the building and the greatest ever building project. The project I'm referring to is found in Genesis chapter 2 where we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Solomon's work of building this house is presented in terms, and we will see that that is made to remind us of God's work of creation and indeed also his rest. In chapter 5, we saw Solomon's purpose to build the temple. Here we see him actually finishing the work. Let's just be upfront this morning. Finishing can be hard. Anyone who has ever started a diet and decided, okay, every other day I'm only going to eat a salad until I get all this flab off of me. Now, you know what I mean. Now, many times you stick for the, with that diet for maybe two weeks. But then on one of your salad days, someone invites you to Texas Steakhouse, their treat. Now, Texas Steakhouse also offers salads, but they are pain. And so instead of that rabbit food, you get the T-bone with fries and the mac and cheese on the side. And you convince yourself that not only is that right, but that is just good stewardship of what you have been given. Finishing can be hard. It has been rightly said that the pathway of Bible studies and conferences are strewn with the intentions of people who started but never finished. Now listen very carefully here. We must both purpose and begin if we're going to complete whatever work God has called each of us to do. When asked how he began the conquest of the world, Alexander the Great is reported to have said, by not delaying. So what has the Lord shown you that he wants you to do? Now is the time to begin. Now back to the temple. Most Israelites would only see this building from the outside. I read this week that when the fire that devastated England's Windsor Castle was quite the costly disaster. And to help pay for the repairs, which cost millions of pounds, Queen Elizabeth II opened her home to visitors. For the first time in history, common tourists could pay a small fee for the unprecedented privilege of walking through all of Buckingham Palace. The opening of the palace afforded a rare glimpse into the Queen's royal splendor. And to know what people are like, it helps to know where they live. And for the Queen of England, home is where the majesty is. People who were fortunate enough to visit Buckingham Palace saw the Queen's royal apartments with their gilded ornaments and famous masterpieces. 
They walked through her stately private gardens. They entered upon her receiving room to gaze upon her golden throne. To see the royal palace was in a way to experience the glory of Elizabeth's kingdom. First Kings gives us a similar experience by taking us on a guided tour of Solomon's temple, the house of God. Sometimes people wonder, what is God really like? Since we have never seen him face to face, it is hard to get an impression of his true and awesome glory. Visiting the house that Solomon built can help us get to know better because when we look at the building carefully, by seeing the plan for its structure and the details of its design, we learn the character of the God who made his home there. Since only the priests were allowed to enter into the temple, most Israelites never would have known what it looked like on the inside. But 1 Kings chapter 6 is going to give us an inside tour. As we look around, we should also ask ourselves the question, what kind of God would live in this kind of house? The answer is a God who loves beauty, who reigns in kingly glory and dwells in matchless holiness. But surprisingly, he is also a God who invites us to come and make our home with him. So remember, once again, that the average Israelite would never have seen the interior of what this temple looks like. So perhaps we can begin to understand the writer's focus on the interior. Because here he gives Joe and Jane Israelite at least a mental tour of God's holy place. He enables them to envisage what it is like and giving the reader also a chance to gawk at the cherubim and the holy of holies. Now our God takes us inside of the building. Only priests could enter the building, but we are taking there in our imaginations as the interior is described for us here. We are now looking at the walls of both rooms within the house. It says the wooden paneling is covered with carvings of fruit or gourds and open flowers. Now I think these decorations are suggestive of a garden. No doubt the Garden of Eden where the Lord's presence was once enjoyed. But more strikingly, it is called the most holy place or literally the holy of holies. This is the most explicit indication so far that the house that Solomon was building was actually God's holy tabernacle. It says, and there was gold everywhere. One commentator describes this costly expenditure as a significant upgrade from the curtain walls and dust floor of the last temple. But before we move on, what were David's two greatest sins? Now, most people would reply his adultery with Bathsheba and his taking a census of the people, and I think that would be correct. But did you know that as a result of his numbering the people, David then purchased a property on Mount Moriah where he built an altar and worshipped the Lord? 
David then married Bathsheba, and God gave them a son whom they named Solomon. Now we have Solomon building a temple on David's mount in Mount Moriah. Now why would I bring that out? God took the consequences of David's two absolute worst sins, a piece of property and a son, and he built a temple. It's the Old Testament version of Romans 5.20 where we read, But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Now this, of course, is not an encouragement to sin because David prayed dearly for both of those transgressions. But it is an encouragement to us to keep going on serving God after we have repented and confessed our sins. Because Satan wants us to think that all is lost. But the God of all grace continues to work. 1 Peter 5.10 encourages us by saying, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory will himself perfect, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week we saw that the Lord sent his word to Solomon at a time when he was either discouraged with the building program or perhaps he was starting to become proud in what he was accomplishing. The Lord reminded Solomon, as he must constantly remind each of us, that he's not impressed with our work if our hearts are not obedient to who he is. What he wants first and foremost, is an obedient heart. Now God would fulfill his promise to David and Solomon, not because Solomon built the temple, but because at this time Solomon obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 23, please. And in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. The one wing of the first cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the first cherub was five cubits. From the end of one wing to the end of the other wing were ten cubits. The second cherub was ten cubits. Both of the cherubim were of the same measurement and the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He placed the cherubim in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim spread out so that the wing of the one was touching the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall. And their wings were touching end to end in the center of the house. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. This morning, we must dismiss from our minds all the images of cherubs that we have from Western art. They are not chubby little angel babies flying around on Hallmark greeting cards. The figures that Solomon had made were imposing and impressive and really a little bit terrifying. The cherubim above the ark represented God's throne. The Lord promised to meet and speak to Moses from between the two cherubim who were on the ark. These two magnificent statues dominated the Holy of Holies. Each angelic figure was about 15 feet tall. And with a wingspan of equal or greater length, the cherubim completely spanned that inner sanctuary. They were carved from olive wood and then plated 
with pure gold. Solomon's golden cherubim remind us once again of the beauty of God and of his kingly majesty. We know from the book of Isaiah and other places that at this very moment, there are cherubim in the presence of God Almighty. And all they do day and night continually is cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And let me assure you, they are not bored doing this. In fact, I think the more that they gaze at God, the more amazed they are at him, and the more facets of his nature that they continually learn about him. Perhaps the bright angelic figures and the beautiful botanical designs that cover the temple were there simply for the sake of beauty, which would be reason enough, because after all, Solomon did believe in beauty for God's sake. But perhaps these decorations also had a deeper meaning, connected to another place of lush vegetation that was also guarded by angels. I think the design of Solomon's temple referenced the Garden of Eden, which meant that its door symbolized the very gates of paradise. The garden where our first parents lived contained every tree that was pleasant to the sight and was also good for food. So the trees inside Solomon's temple naturally should remind us of our ancestral home. But in this case, there was also angels in the architecture, which establishes a stronger connection, I think, with the Garden of Eden. If you recall, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sin in eating the forbidden fruit, he placed cherubim somewhere east of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And since we have been reminded by Solomon's building work of the early chapters of the book of Genesis, these two cherubim should remind us of the cherubim and the flaming sword the Lord placed to guard the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, whereas the Garden of Eden was formerly a place to go and meet with God, now angels barred that way, preventing man and woman from ever re-entering paradise. So when people came to the door of Solomon's temple and saw the cherubim and the flowers and the trees, they were coming to the gates of paradise. For most people, access to Solomon's virtual garden was still denied unless they were priests, so they would never see the golden wonders that were inside this temple. Only the high priest would ever enter the presence of God who was reigning from his earthly throne in the Holy of Holies. But however limited that access may have been, there was access. God was now opening up the way. Paradise lost could now be regained. In fact, the gold inside the temple whispered rumors of an everlasting paradise where even the streets are going to be paved with gold. That was then. This is now. This morning we are still living somewhere east of Eden in a fallen and broken world. But God is calling us home. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to see his royal beauty. 
He is now inviting us to the throne room of his temple where he is worshipped by holy angels. And the only way to enter God's paradise is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the door for us because he has already entered the most holy place. Not the holy of holies inside of Solomon's temple, which was only a copy of the true reality, but actually heaven itself. Jesus entered the throne room of heaven as our priest to present the blood of his own sacrifice on the cross and the once and all atonement for our sins. Now through Jesus, the way once again, it has been opened up to God. The book of Hebrews says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way they opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Yes, let us draw near to God in this holy temple through Christ Jesus. He will forgive us, and he will receive us, and he will save us forever if we but just come to him. There was a time when God lived in Solomon's house, but his long-range plan for all Christians is for us to live in his house, the palace of paradise. Verse 29 Then he carved all the surrounding walls of the house with engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers for the inner and outer sanctuaries. And he overlaid the floor of the house with gold for the inner and outer sanctuaries. And for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel and five-sided doorposts. So he made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he overlaid the cherubim and the palm trees with gold. So too he made for the entrance of the main room four-sided doorposts of olive wood and two doors of juniper wood. The two leaves of the one door turned on pivots and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. He carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold plated on the carved work. And he built the inner courtyard with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, that is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and in accordance with all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. The famous English poet George Herbert was right to praise King Solomon for his extravagance when he wrote, Lord, with what glory was thou served of old when Solomon's temple stood and flourished, where most things were of purest gold, the wood was all embellished. Not only does God create beauty and love beauty, but he himself is a beautiful God. Whatever beauty we see in our world and in the universe finds its source in God's own loveliness. Jonathan Edwards wrote, He is infinitely the most beautiful and excellent God and the foundation and fountain of all beauty. 
All the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is a reflection of the diffused beam, beams of that being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. When Solomon's father dreamed of building a temple and then going there for worship, it was mainly because he wanted to see that beauty for himself. David said in Psalm 27:4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. The true beauty of God is not in his external appearance, but his inward character. God is beautiful in the love that he shows to his children, in the mercy that he continually offers to lost sinners, and in the perfect harmony that he displays in all of his different divine attributes. But we see the beauty of God most clearly of all in the person of Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus was especially beautiful in his physical appearance. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite, really. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and he had no beauty that we should desire him. If you would have passed Jesus on the street back then, you would not have been drawn to his perfect smile and his long Fabio-like blonde hair. Many paintings of Jesus makes him look more like a surfer than a savior. No, he looked just like everybody else that you would pass on the street, and yet Jesus Christ is more beautiful than any person who has ever lived. He is beautiful because of the perfection of his love and the costliness of his sacrifice. For all of its apparent ugliness, his death on the cross was the most beautiful thing that anyone has ever done. It was the sacrifice of the one perfect life offered in suffering and pain so that everyone who believes in him could be forgiven. Well, now God is doing something beautiful in us. The Holy Spirit is continually working and chipping away at the ugliness of our sin, making us more and more like Christ and therefore more and more beautiful all of the time. I guess the seven years that Solomon took to build the temple is a telling note on which we can close the chapter. It should remind us of the seven days of Genesis, which on the seventh that the Lord also rested. So it's time for us to think about the importance of what we have learned in 1 Kings chapter 6 the past two weeks. At the heart of it is simply this. In the days of King Solomon, the son of David, God's promise became a visible, tangible, solid reality. This was the climactic moment in the history of the people of Israel. What had begun for their redemption from bondage in Egypt had culminated into the peace and security of Solomon's kingdom and has now been sealed with the building of the house of the Lord. The house represented Eden restored, where what was lost by the disobedience of Adam and Eve could once again be enjoyed by God's people 
who lived under the good rule of an obedient king. God would dwell among them and not ever forsake them. Let us be very clear this morning the importance of what this building here represents. Because in due course, the people are going to forget this. And the glory and the magnificent building itself. About four centuries after Solomon, the prophet Jeremiah is going to proclaim a devastating condemnation to those whose trust was in the glory of the building. When he would say these words, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And soon afterwards, God's judgment is going to fall finally on Jerusalem. And the house that Solomon built is going to be destroyed. Even when the disciples of Jesus expressed their admiration for the house that had been built in Jerusalem in their own day, Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that is not going to be thrown down. So we see that Solomon's building was not permanent. As Colossians says, it was a shadow of things that are about to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The house of the Lord built by Solomon points us to the meaning and purpose of all history of the whole world, but it is only the shadow that is showing us the substance. The true temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. Speaking of his own body, he said, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it back up again. If Jesus himself, the greater son of David, God's promise once again became a visible, tangible, and solid reality. This was the climatic moment in the history of the entire world. What began with God's creations of the heavens and earth has culminated in the peace and security of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what are we to make in the days in which we live? The question is still complicated, but we can see that in the times in which we live, those are the days for building and for the work of the gospel of Christ. That is the most important building project in all of history. And Solomon's temple can also help us to see the outcome of Jesus' temple and building project. So as we finish today, Finally, we look forward to a city in which there will be no temple because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Revelation says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have all passed away. I long for that this morning, don't you? Pray with me. Lord, it's hard for me to believe sometimes that I am a temple. Often I'm a lot more ghoul than gold, it seems like. But you are working on us, O God. 
to the extent we will allow your Holy Spirit to change us and work in concert with you, you are making each one of us beautiful. I guess it says, Father, you make all things beautiful in your time. And I'm thankful, Lord, that the same way that Solomon finished, you promised in Philippians 1.6 to finish when you said, of this one thing I'm very certain, he who began a good work, he will be the one that will finish it. So thankful for that, Lord. I just pray, Father, Father, for each person here, that wherever we are in our relationship with you, that you would be for us the God that you need to be, whether it's a Savior, a sanctifier, an encourager, Whatever we need, Lord, you can be all those things, and you are all those things. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This being the 